Hey everybody, Ted James here, Editor-in-Chief of The Left Ahead, welcoming you to the inaugural episode of Solidarity Radio. Such an honor to have you here. It's been a long time coming. This podcast has actually been in development since August 2016, so we are thrilled to finally be sharing the first episode with you on Labor Day 2017. Happy Labor Day, everybody. So, what is Solidarity Radio? I'm glad you asked. Solidarity Radio is a labor movement podcast hosted by Jay Dow, a good friend of mine, and myself. We're recording here in Denver, Colorado, and we're bringing you Solidarity Radio on the Union Underground imprint. We're hopeful this will become a regular feature on the blog, and our goals are to um, try to introduce some new folks to the labor movement, talk about some ways to build the movement, interview some key unionists from time to time, and just have some fun. Jay Dow and I are just out here trying to build, build, build the movement. So this first episode was actually recorded on June 3rd, 2017. Um, We recorded late at night, so it actually goes into June 4th, 2017. Um, But it's a good introduction to Jay Dow and me. Um, We talk a lot about how we got into the movement um, and some of our philosophies. So um, I did edit it up a little bit, but I uh, wanted it to be a free-flowing conversation, so um, it does kind of move organically. So really hope you enjoy it. Uh, one housekeeping note before we get started, just want to make sure everybody knows that the views being expressed on this podcast are those of me, Ted James, and Jay Dow alone. We are not on the podcast uh, representing any labor organization, any union, or anything of that nature. We're just out here speaking for ourselves, so... With that being said, I am so honored to bring you Solidarity Radio, Episode 1. Let's get it. Yo, it's time for the underground to rise. If y'all are feeling me, throw your fist up, let me hear you say what? Come on! What's good, everybody? It's your boy, Ted James. Hey, I've been out of the podcasting game now for about, geez, almost 10 years. But I am back with my boy, Jason J. Dow in the house. The brand new podcast for you guys um, coming on the Left Ahead website on the Union Underground brand. This is Solidarity Radio. S Radio. You didn't mention that I'm the union CEO. Yeah, we're going to get to that. <laughs> we're going to get all into that. This is Jason J. Dow, a.k.a. the union CEO. Those are all names that you call me, though. Right, right. Those are names that everybody calls me, right? <laughs> yeah, not If everybody's yet. calling me that, I probably need to work on that. <laughs> if everybody's calling you the union CEO, it means your your uh, entrepreneurial vision has yeah. played its way into reality. So Yeah, very much so. So um, just to give a little background about this podcast, um, I actually am a podcasting veteran out of uh, San Antonio, 2005 to 2007, uh, did a, a podcast called Guerrilla Radio, G Radio out of San Antonio. This was during the pioneering uh, period of podcasting, so we got a lot of notoriety by being pioneers in the, um, in the field of podcasting. 
some old San Antonio Express news, San Antonio Current articles on what we were doing back then. Uh, me and a couple of my friends that uh, made music with back in those days. So anyway, I'm glad to be back. 2017, it's long overdue. Uh, Jason and I launched this Union Underground brand uh, about six months ago. Talked about this earlier, um, but uh, yeah, we we did one video at a uh, Tom Morello uh, stop the TPP concert and uh, haven't really done a lot with the brand yet, other than just sh like we share union content pretty regularly. Yeah, some pro union, <laughs> pro labor, right? Uh, uh, memes and social media content and messages that are just pro labor, pro union. Trying to uh, uh, encourage engagement among like millennials, for example, uh, who are coming through the workforce at a time when organized labor is only at like 7% of the private sector, maybe one third still of the public sector, but under constant threat. Um, so we're just trying to get to the bottom with this podcast of um, is organized labor something worth surviving? And beyond that, if it's worth surviving, is it worth thriving? And returning to a, a former version of itself, like a form of glory. Hey, um, back in uh, a time period when the United States had a middle class. Yeah, so when the middle class it was at its strongest. <laughs> right. Around post-World War II, Korea, in between. Yeah, yeah. Uh, 1950s Eisenhower era. Uh, from 1935 with the Wagner Act, the National Labor Relations Act, that forms the National Labor Relations Board. And the right to organize and all of that, right? Organizing then was at 10% of the private sector, higher than it is today. So it was high. We were more organized as a workforce yeah. before we had a legal right to do it. If you right. heard then that before in conferences and stuff. Then got the National Labor Relations Act passed in 1935 and membership started to soar to a high of like 35% in the private sector. So basically, one out of every three American workers in like the 1950s were, and think about it, like factories and warehouses and like big organized groups of workers uh, were in a labor union of some kind. Now, it's only 7%. So back then, the Union um, Underground tries to yeah, we're get gonna, us back to the 35. Yeah, we're going to do some worker uprising on the next level right here. So mm -hmm. uh, hope you all are ready. Grassroots organizing effort. Absolutely. Hope y'all are ready to move. Idea. By the way, back to what Jason was saying, like back then, um, you know, at the height of the labor movement, a CEO made on average um, somewhere in the range of 20 times, mm -hmm. 13 to 20 times what the frontline worker made. Now, um, after 30 years of union busting, um, deregulation, triple, trickle, trickle down economics, a uh, CEO today makes uh, on average 350 times what the frontline worker makes in the United States of America. Freaking crazy. So um, here's my thing. I love that we live in a country where you can be and do whatever you want, right? Liberty and justice for all. To have the liberty to make $20 million a year, whether it's being a corporate CEO or an athlete or an actor or actress... I don't want to begrudge any of them from making that much money. But if worker pay on the front line isn't keeping up with productivity 
Right. Where it started to fall off in the 80s during Reaganomics. And we no longer got paid for what we produced. We got paid what we were told we were worth. Right. And um, interest shifted from stakeholders to shareholders at that time. So now we have not kept up with productivity. And so therefore we also have not kept up with inflation, cost of goods, cost of living. Right. So we've actually had wage stagnation for probably the last 30 years in terms of uh, the incomes that have increased have only been on pace with like the purchasing power for that time. So we need, I think, more organized labor in, in America. I mean, that's just my kind of like root conclusion. Yep. Um, but I think we need more organized labor that is um, unbiased or, or balanced where like right now, I think organized labor leans very much to the left. Like talking about income inequality, CEO pay as a ratio of frontline worker pay. I think there's got to be a way to tie that into the conservative line, such as, and we started talking about this a little bit ago, like Walmart, if we had a $15 an hour minimum wage, then Walmart is no longer subsidized by our tax dollars. Right. That's a conservative issue. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Conservatives don't want to pay taxes. You know, right. like I want to keep my hard-earned money. Right. I agree. Yes. So I'm not so conservative, stop. like, you know, in whole, but in part, I can understand a little bit of conservative philosophy that like, man, I worked and I earned that money and I got to give up like a quarter of it even. Yeah. You but know, when they, if they understood that you're giving up a quarter of it so that uh, Walmart can make $10 billion profit instead of six. Yeah. That should be an, uh, an issue that all conservatives would rally around to say, hell no, we're not going to do yeah. that. So um, corporate welfare, I think, could be a good lead-in to talk with unaffiliated who aren't hardline Dems, right. right? Which our labor environment has plenty of already. We're, 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 we're full of that. We're... Right, so well, we're rich and, with with liberal ide- ideology, right? And it's good stuff. It's good stuff. I'm not saying it's bad stuff. I'm saying it's not enough stuff because rank and file members in labor unions today are not just Dems themselves, right? No, They're half Dems, half. Yeah, I mean your point is well taken because like Trump, Donald Trump won. 40-something percent of union households in this last election. I mean, granted, he was running as a populist, which is a complete joke, but for whatever reason, a lot of people bought it. And he was running against a corporatist that, um, you know, was, like, very highly linked to NAFTA. But um, it's just inexcusable that, like, um, that the labor movement, the leadership of the labor movement hasn't been able to... um, connect with you know 40 something percent of our membership who thought that donald trump was their best hope for some sort of economic relief right i don't know the the history a hundred percent so maybe you'll know some things that you can help me understand currently labor leans left 
Yeah. And where does that come from? Where does it come from that organized labor is a is a liberal thing? Well, I think it's really developed since Reagan in the 80s. Um, I mean, if you remember in the 60s, I mean... Labor's history is not, like, without, like, blemishes. Um, you know, there was union, white union members on, you know, on the on the streets, like, helping inflame the, you know, racist uh, flames in the South against Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement. Um, you know, there was union members on the wrong side of that. Um, so... Anyway, back to your point, like, um, yeah, like, there's always been conservative people in the labor movement. Um, I think how labor's leadership got pushed so far to the left was when the Republican Party abdicated having any kind of, like, um, like foundation of, of fighting for working people and their issues. They, yeah. You know... From the 80s on, they've essentially um, been a party that's been about uh, income redistribution, except in the other direction that what we always talk about with socialism. Um, the Republican Party has been a party that's been about redistributing income from working and middle class families to the uber wealthy. Yeah. And so I think that's why the leadership of labor has had to move hard left. And the, the funny thing is, is that... Um, you know, in that void that that comes from Republicans pulling so far to the right, the modern day Democratic corporatist Democratic Party has filled that void of what used to be a, a reasonable traditional Republican, right? Like, ah. like the Clintons of the world are not what I would consider progressives. I don't know if I mentioned it at the top of the show, but we're uh, broadcasting from Denver, Colorado. Yeah, we never said where we are. <laughs> so um, one of the ideas for this podcast is we're going to start local and see if we can bring it global. You know, our vision is to one day be like interviewing people at the very height of the labor movement or political world. Um, yeah, that's where I'm, I'm a little bit like I feel our specific experience has been with like a single labor union. <laughs> right. So we have contacts within that single labor union who might be willing to come on with us right. and talk and Absolutely. share a little bit of their feelings about labor, current, labor, past, labor, future, whatever. Yeah, so we're going to um, have the goal of uh, doing a monthly podcast. Uh, we're both very busy. Can't, uh, you know, can't commit too much time to this, in the at least in the short term, but uh, we're going to try to do one a month. And uh, after this inaugural episode, we're going to try to, you know, when we have guests on, interview them and find out why are they in the labor movement um, and um, and why do they think it's important uh, to fight um, to make, you know, some economic justice happen in this country. So uh, on that note, I think tonight an easy way to start the, the ball rolling is and an e a good way for the audience to get to know us a little better that Jason and I are going to do a quick interview of each other, find out our own uh, labor experiences, and then uh, keep it moving from there. So, Jason, how'd you get in the labor movement? Um, well, my wife and I moved to Denver, Colorado, 4th of July, 2013. Um, I needed to find a job that 
I was well qualified for, so I thought I had a good shot at getting. Uh, I had a lot of sales background prior to moving here. And so we had cell phone service with AT&T for our personal lines. So I went and looked up on AT&T's website uh, if they had any jobs available. And I applied for a retail sales consultant. So uh, the inspiration for that came from uh, Michelle's best friend who passed away uh, a month after we moved to Colorado. Uh, He had worked in retail all of his working life, but he was only like 33. He died way too early. So... Uh, he always uh, spoke very highly of retail work. Yeah. So I applied for a retail job at AT&T, got that, didn't know it was union. But I was born and raised in Brooklyn, New York, so I thought everybody was pro-union, pro-labor, you know. Uh, they were our childhood heroes, many of them, and from the public sector. It was in New York, our police, our fire, our EMTs and paramedics and... Um, teachers and uh, nurses and uh, sanitation workers. I remember um, in elementary school, the sanitation department of New York came and talked to us about their jobs for our future and how good those jobs were. And it was because they were union jobs. And in high school in New York, when I'm growing up in the public school system in New York, uh, they did mock bargaining. They put a class of us in in a high school business class uh, uh, across a long table from each other, and we had to negotiate contracts that with each other bizarre. based on yeah, based on like um, scenarios that they would give us, you know, That's certain criteria and stuff. So I grew up in just on an aside. Uh, we'll get back to it later. I grew up in Texas. That would never happen. They would never teach us a mock bargaining class. <laughs> so because New York, I believe, is well organized in public education. Yeah. Uh, and I went to public schools for my whole K through 12. My teachers, my entire K through 12 experience were all labor, union, right. maybe teachers not were. themselves representatives or stewards or officers or whatever, but they were all pro-union. I think they all got it. Right. And it was how they got stuff, I think, like their tenure and sabbaticals and those kind of things that were parts of their contracts, if I, if I understand it correctly, how it works for them. Um, so for me, when I started the job at AT AT&T and learned that it was union, um, I didn't even hesitate to sign my union cards. Uh, I just became a member right away. It was October, November, 2013, uh, after we had moved here 4th of July that year. Um, Michelle got into law school. So my job was to get a job that pays for both of us to get her all the way through. And then when she's working again, we'd be back to dual income. So it was going to be kind of like a shoestring budget for a little while and stuff, maybe. Um, But uh, where the union activity started to pick up was not just when I signed my membership cards in like the first few weeks of being a new hire. Did you sign in orientation class or? No, I didn't. uh, There was no orientation class for my new hire training. Okay. That was something that later on we developed. Right. right. all, uh, uh, All of us. Uh, which really yielded like a lot of new members when the conversation was being had early and often. Right. Um, so no, for me it was when there was like this educational program that was being organized around uh, uh, bringing new members in and educating existing members uh, toward like what is 
um, organized labor, what is collective bargaining, how does this all work. So you got invited to this class a couple weeks after being on the job? It was in, nah, it was like in February, like uh, a few months later. Okay, so... You so I signed up for membership immediately. Okay. Um, so how did that happen, though? Did the union organizer come in or what? Yeah, so there was one person named Ben. He was a retiree uh-huh. uh, from a different bargaining unit. But as a retiree, he like came back into the local... Uh, and they, this local pays retirees like 10 bucks a, an hour as like supplemental income to their retirement and their pensions and whatever, mm-hmm. you know? So it's meant to be like a secondary stream of income to boost retiree members who, you know, not necessarily like broke, but like fixed incomes with like social and any pension from the job and anything else you've saved and whatever, Right. So they have this like kind of setup. It's really cool. So Ben came to your store and signed you up almost yeah. immediately. Yeah, and it was just by chance. It yeah. was uh, 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 my training back then was like two weeks out of town, third week back, and then the fourth week was out of town again. So during that third week is when Ben was coming around just doing his other duties, and um, he signed me up, seeing me in the back on a computer, like filling out new hire stuff. Oh, okay. He. Put two and two together and and had never seen me before there. So he just approached me and introduced himself. And coming from New York, I thought that's exactly what you're expected to see. Mm -hmm. And so where do I sign? You know, I didn't know Colorado was a modified right to work state at the time um, in in which you, you have an option to be a member or not. Uh, The, the impetus uh, or the, the, the importance then uh, falls on the union to demonstrate its value in order to solicit members who know they have a choice. They have to want to choose to be members. There, there has to be, for these workers today, I think, some quid pro quo. Yeah. Like for my membership dollars, what am I getting out of it? What's in it for me? Um, not their fault. Incomes today have not kept up. Right. With rising costs of goods and services, we've had wage stagnation for decades um, because income hasn't kept up with productivity. So, um, so all of this, uh, when I started going to the classes, and, and this was the, the the discussions that were being had, um, yeah. I, I I really enjoyed the class. So I came back for a second class and a third class, and then I was invited to become a trainer that was leading the classes. Right. So I became a trainer for the union. Um, First, just in my local area, and then like helping out another local area, and then helping out another local area, and um, through that process, I uh, two things happened for me. I became an elected vice president of my local, mm-hmm. and I became an appointed coordinator for my district for my bargaining unit. Right. So I represented five thousand coworkers. Uh, at AT&T Mobility, the wireless workers in retail, in the call centers, uh, the technicians in the field, uh, in 15 states, 5,000 of them. So I traveled a lot, went to the, the, the education, the seminars, the conferences. I actually started speaking at them some of the times, like voluntarily to help deliver content who, so people weren't just going and socializing only. Right. Although that was a big part of it too. And that made it very, you know, enjoyable and attractive that you start meeting and networking with coworkers, not just in your local market, but across the entire country. 
So it was a really positive experience for me uh, right off the bat too because uh, that timeline again. So I knew higher October 2013, um, member by November 30, 2013, by like the third week. Uh-huh. Going to the class is like February, March, April, May. I was in that train the trainer to become a trainer in June. And then in that August 2014, I was in Pittsburgh for the next gen conference that they threw. And I was on a panel that spoke in front of the conference, and it was attended by about 300 people. So it was a 30-minute panel, I think it was, that was led by Annie Hill, who was the secretary-treasurer of the International Union at the time. Yeah. So I got to meet her, like, immediately upon becoming a member, taking a couple of classes, signing up to be a trainer, not even working my local area yet, and now I'm already going to a conference and speaking, like, in public, essentially. I met Ron Collins there. That was really cool. Uh, And the overall experience of going to one of these conferences for a couple of days in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, I met, you know, like a ton of other pro-labor, pro-union folks from all over the country. This was the the next-gen conference. So it was all uh, pro-labor, pro-union, union members under 35. Yeah. Um, and mentors over 35. So with the uh, so, name drops, people that are interested could probably figure it out. You're talking about CWA, Communication Workers of America. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So I was a telecom right. worker, so I was in the telecom union, though those lines get blurred now. Different unions will handle different trades. Um, so Communications Workers of America doesn't just handle communications workers either. It handles uh, flight attendants and... Um, uh, TNG, the Newspaper Guild. Public sector. Uh, public sector workers, yeah. Um, there's several others. I'm going to you know care. butcher it if I try to name them all right now. Um, right, but, I just was throw that out there because you dropped a couple uh, CWA folks' names. For sure. I think we should. I think we should. <laughs> yeah, yeah. From keep this it, point forward, I don't, you know. Yeah, we're keeping it 100. The more, yeah, keep it 100. I know that's funny, popular now. <laughs> uh, let's keep it 100. Uh, and talk about the people that we'd actually love to have on here to talk about this from their perspective. Right. So if, if this is to be a thing, like where we can get organized around that. So we're at the point in your story where you're like going to conferences, you're like leading your coworkers as a district wide coordinator, you're an elected vice president of your local. Sounds like things are going pretty well in the labor movement. Um, Oh, yeah. uh, So what happened next? (laughs) All right. So I'm not doing any of that anymore now. I'm retired. Yeah. Uh, A lot of things happened all around the same time. Number one, at home, Michelle graduated from law school. It's three years later. Fast forward, right? Right. right. Um, She passed her bar exams. She is an attorney. Uh, She's got, you know, a great job downtown. We moved to a place that was close to light rail so she can go to the downtown office every day. Uh, For me, once that happened, it became like my turn. Like, we moved here for you to go to school. Right. So now it's my turn. What what do I do next? Because we have the opportunity... Uh, we've done not great financially, but bet good enough to where my income helped with the bills while she was in school. Her income takes care of the bills while I'm on to the next chapter, whatever that is. Yeah. So doing the union activism work um, full time for quite a while. In fact, like about a year and a half, you know, with brief returns to work mm-hmm. you know, during that period. Uh, the company 
started to push back and wanted me to come back to work, which I no longer had the spark for. You know, my passion was with going and helping others with their labor uh, questions and labor requests, you know. Uh, I was getting into some, some deep stuff, like, you know, help, trying to help solve problems between labor and management at the local levels, right? Right, right. So um, when the company pushed back, I did not want to return to my former job as a retail worker. Mm-hmm. I did a year and a half of it and was quite happy with the experience, and it taught me a lot that I had carried forward and was using for my representation purposes. So uh, I just didn't want to stop doing all the representation and all the work that I was doing, organizing and educating and stuff like that. So um, I resigned at that point. And there was no way to continue doing the the district coordinator for a unit I no longer belonged to. Right. And the local couldn't figure out a way to keep me on as like, you know, uh, uh, an individual or independent member or a member at large or um, I forgot what, an ad hoc membership, I think uh-huh. there's a processing unit for. So, you know, um, at that point, uh, I went off and called myself kind of like an undercover brother. I wasn't a <laughs> member of any local or, or labor union. But I just have those pro-labor, pro-union values. That doesn't go away. Right. Um, well, so here, if, if you don't mind me interjecting, uh, this brings me to something I really was thinking about today when we're thinking about, oh, we're going to tell our stories as the host of the show uh, for the inaugural episode. Um, to me, like, it just seems crazy that in 2017, in the age of technology, that uh, we still have an employer-based labor movement, right? Just like we have an employer-based healthcare system. If you lose your job, uh, I mean, obviously with Obamacare, which is now under attack again, unfortunately, but with Obamacare, at least for a little while, uh, things were a little bit better. But, um, you know, for the most part, we still live in an employer-based healthcare system where if you lose your job, you lose your healthcare. We're also like... You know, by having these hard, fast rules about bargaining units and uh, unionized workplaces and non-unionized workplaces, we have a very job-dependent labor movement. So if you leave one job, um, you know, you uh, all your official capacities in the labor movement ended um, effectively. And, like, as all the, although you continue to have these very strong passions for the movement and, like... Uh, and for pro-union beliefs, you don't have a direct way to stay engaged with the movement because you are now, uh, when you can talk about your uh, being a self-employed entrepreneur, but being that, there's no real like place for you to just make that strong, direct connection. I so, mean, you still show up on the picket line. We know that from a couple <coughs> weeks ago, but like, yeah. but talk about I came, that. I came out for a strike. Right. Yeah. Uh, I was not a paid protester. That's number one. I was a volunteer. That was important to me. And I didn't know until the day before the strike actually to happened that I was going to participate. I saw several days prior the announcement that there was going to be a three-day strike from Friday at 1 p.m. through the weekend. And on Thursday, I from Monday to Thursday, I didn't plan on anything. On Thursday, I 
I just sent out a Facebook post to my friends and family and kind of told them what was happening. I thought it was, honestly, in a, in a bit of a selfish way even, I thought it was kind of cool that I'd get to break a little news to some friends and family that they may not have already heard because it wasn't like on a national platform or anything like that, you mm-hmm. know, in, in the media. So I thought, cool, you know, maybe Facebook here can do a, a little bit of its part to educate and inform and whatever, you know, a large group of people. Because I've got about a thousand friends and family on Facebook. So um, uh, when, when does Facebook something have traction? Uh, when it gets a good number of likes or it gets some comments or it gets some different reactions than a like or whatever. And this post got a, a lot of feedback, positive feedback. Uh, from both uh, liberal family and friends and conservative family and friends who I, who I have on Facebook. So and it was just about being pro-worker, you know. These workers are, are trying to get, you know, better pay, better benefits, and better job security. Um, their pay is shot because they have unattainable metrics that pay worse and worse commissions, which make up about a third of their overall compensation, the benefits, the cost of healthcare is going up for everybody, not just these particular workers, but uh, they saw increases to their healthcare that even if they get a pay raise, it's only going to the cost of healthcare. And then job security, because retail work is being shifted over to independent uh, operators, like third-party stores, authorized retailers, they're called. So corporate-owned retail, where the organized workers are, those are going away. Um, and for like the call center workers, call center operations are being uh, outsourced overseas and sometimes insourced with prison labor. So um, there's really not very good pay, not very good benefits, not very good job security in a sector that used to be really good jobs. When the wireless industry was a growth sector, when not everybody had a cell phone yet, but you can go to your AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, or Sprint, or whatever equivalent stores it was back then before mergers and acquisitions took over. So you go to your singular, singular. store. Yeah, right? Uh, what was the precursor to T-Mobile? Uh, Metro? That's their current uh, prepaid operator, I think. Spring Mobile or something? There's Spring Mobile uh, now, no, which is that, AT&T's yeah, authorized retailers. Yeah. Uh, what was I it? don't remember. I'll think of it. You yeah. keep talking, I'll think of it. All right. <laughs> So voice stream, voice stream. Yeah. That was the precursor to T-Mobile. Mine was Nextel. Yeah. Yeah. So when it was a growth industry, working in retail in a mobility store of any kind paid like big bucks. Some of them were making six figures. The good ones were making six figures, right? Balling. Just doing activations for people coming in for their first cell phone or getting that new cell phone. Because even back then, cell phone technology was already evolving and there was always a cool new cell phone. Uh, it went from the Nokia lipstick or candy bar, rather, um, cell phone, the candy bar, then the first flip phones. Oh, um, man, did you ever have the Motorola Razor? I didn't have a Razor. Uh, did you have a Razor? I loved my Razor. Yeah, Razor was a good phone. phone. Then Blackberry, Crackberries came out and took over for the Razor, right? Yeah, right. My uh, good friend of mine back in Phoenix had early versions of the Blackberry mm. and he was on it like constantly the thing was attached to his hand I said one day it's going to be brown because you're going to forget to let go of it before you wipe your ass <laughs> so that's gross but you know 
you get the point. And then iPhone came out, and everybody had to have iPhone, and then, God, it was just a, a ramp up from there. Yeah. I mean, the Samsung. Cell, the cell phone industry a, was like kind of a unicorn. Samsung you know? was at the five yard line about to like uh, supplant iPhone, and mm-hmm. then they fumbled the ball by having an exploding phone. <laughs> so, the, so, veterans of the wireless industry, that's what they'll call the good old days. Yeah. When, when they only had to show up. And they were going to make money, right, right? right? Now everybody's got a cell phone. The market's saturated. So people are coming in for, like, upgrades. Same service, same plan, same relative monthly cost. Right. Or lower cost, uh, which is also needed um, and is provided by, like, this competitive market and stuff, right? So um, the workers are striking now. Oh, yeah. Because it's a, it's a point. It's a breaking point. It's, right. a, tipping, it's a tipping point. You know, it's bad enough where a large number of workers could just walk out and actually never come back, let alone after three days, right? So we got tons of participation in that strike last week. Yeah. And that was a volunteer effort for me. Everything that Everything that we just said is all part of the rhetoric that came... That went into that strike and came out of that strike. Yeah, it was great. I I did all three days, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. It's just like the energy... Of uh, the folks, the participation like, rate, and to me, like the best part is watching like some of the workers that have been union members but had never done something like yeah. that. Join and the best part up. for me is the folks who would never be a union member. They've said it to my face. Participated in the strike, right? So you don't have to be a member to to go out on strike with the members. Right. The exactly. members are the dues paying, salt of the earth people. Who are making this all possible for the non-members to join in. Right. So hopefully as a result of this, non-members will convert to members when they see the power that the people have when they organize, you know, around a cause. Because, you know, we may not get a contract yet. We still don't have one, but we're back to work. They're back to work. I don't work for the company anymore. Well, that, that was going back to our original, like, we went off on this huge tangent. But, like, yeah, like... So you um, are obviously still there in Solidarity, Solidarity Radio, shameless plug. Uh, yeah. But you're still there in Solidarity, but you have no direct connection to CWA or the movement anymore, right? Like, because you're now... I have talk to, about what your decision you made. You didn't want to go back to AT&T, so you, yeah. so you left the company, which in effect... So how do I stay Seven, in the labor family right. when I'm not part of a labor union company? Right. And now you're a self-employed entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. like, do you see what I'm saying? Like, why isn't there a direct way? Because you, you're 100% they're, 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 labor activist without, uh, without a union, essentially, uh-huh. right now. Right? Uh, I'm blazing my own trail. Yeah. So I'm calling myself the union CEO because having come from a labor background... Um, I'm going forward with a pro-labor values. When I set up a company, I'm beginning with the end in mind that that company, if it has any employees, ideally they're going to be unionized employees or they're going to have some kind of um, equitable contract that gives them set, you know, expectations that... uh, are, are good good terms for them that they can you know wholeheartedly agree to and uh, attainable metrics whatever they are but my goal is going to be to start my own project something small scale 
and then reinvest the proceeds from that into the next project, the next project, next company. Maybe go on to acquire companies, small companies, local companies that I can stay close to, but make the distinguishing factor with that company that I acquire where I boost its profitability is going to be that the workers in that company will be organized. Whatever they were lacking in terms of pay benefits and job security, we'll write that in rather than any fear of being replaced. Wait, wait, wait. Let me get this straight. So you're saying you as the CEO will uh, be the one encouraging and orchestrating a union for your employees. Yeah, it's not the just... The union CEO! <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> that is awesome, Jason. Yeah. How many other CEOs in America do you know that have said that? Maybe four? You can count them on one hand. I think, you know, like the one guy in San Francisco... Right. ...who insisted on paying every employee 70 grand a year. Mm -hmm. And so he took a pay cut from, I think, a million dollars a year that he was entitled to in earnings based on his how the company's bylaws were written up and the, the revenue share and whatever. Uh, he took a he took a voluntary pay cut to give everyone a pay raise to seventy thousand, and they're they're doing just fine. It's a small business, I think. That's like a um, an office space of like fifteen twenty people or something. Right. Um, but everyone from the janitor to the CEO makes at least seventy thousand dollars. So yeah, things like that inspired me and motivated me to do something like this to uh, sort of self proclaim or declare that I'm a union, pro-union CEO. So, so let me ask you this. If though, you clearly have a lot of like close relationships in like CWA and that was your union, if there were a way now that you're an entrepreneur for you to pay dues and stay like 100% connected to your union and be a part of the larger labor movement, like, you know, to continue fighting back to like restore economic justice in this country, what would you do? Would you uh, happily pay dues if there was a capacity through which you could? Um, yeah, I would join CWA. Um, not sure which local, but... Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not talking about specifics about what local or whatever, but like yeah. the idea being that like because you changed jobs from being an AT&T mobility rep to being a self-employed entrepreneur, you are no longer a CWA member. No, I'm not a member currently. Yeah. So that is a problem with our I'm movement. CW, I'm a CWA supporter. That is the problem with our movement. Just like you shouldn't lose your health care if, you, uh, if you change jobs. You shouldn't lose your union if you change jobs. Let's fix that. Because uh -huh. that's um, what it's going to take. I mean, uh, you know, like we talked earlier about there's been uh, income redistribution in this country for 30 years. It's just happened to be... Um, the Republican Party predominantly and now to uh, a certain extent the, the corporate Democratic Party have redistributed income from working and middle class Americans to the wealthy. And as long as we have a revolving door of union membership and cannot increase our density because union membership is contingent on, on employment, um, you know, then we're going to have a hard time fighting back. I say we make union membership a way of life like if you have a union that you've belonged to you can keep your union 
If you like CWA, Zhao, you can keep CWA. As long as you want to fucking keep it, man. That's how it should be, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I'll get off off of my uh, soapbox, but I just wanted to throw that in on the inaugural episode. Well, it's, it's kind of empowering at the same time to be a former employee, a former member, but a continuing supporter. Right. Because then the choice is mine. I'm not owned by the company I work for for a paycheck or the union that I am a member of, you know, because I, I uh, have membership requirements. I don't, I'm not required uh, at this point to be or do anything for CWA other than whatever I want to be or do, which is, you know, for now, a casual supporter. Right. Uh, the strike that happened last weekend is a good example of that again. It was Friday, Saturday, Sunday. You were there for all three days. I was there for Friday. I had plans for Saturday and Sunday. I didn't want to break them. They were important family functions. And I felt like, you know, I'm coming out of retirement for Friday, right. you know, and that's it. Uh, that's, 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 my, that's my choice. That's my give, right? Yeah, that makes sense. Um, if I was an employee still or uh, uh, appointed this and elected that, I'd have been under a far greater obligation to be there all three days. I would have actually been primarily responsible for organizing and coordinating the activities of the strike and stuff on the local level, probably, for sure, uh, you know, on the district level, probably some, you know, I don't know, I don't even know. Yeah, I mean, you would have been because I wasn't heavily involved. Yeah, so I, having been from heavily involved and giving up important family functions and things and losing that time that I could never get back to choosing how much I can give and when I can give it and that it was appreciated that I gave it because it was now outside you know support it's public support because that's all I am I'm a general public you know former member former employee so I don't know that we need to necessarily keep engaged members post-employment yeah but supporters people people who who leave when they leave they might leave on their terms just like I did. Right. No, I guess that's a larger point. I mean, obviously, the due structure is more complicated um, as far as, like, trying to keep people engaged in the labor movement post like, yeah. working for a union company. So, But in your rare example, you were, like, really heavily in the CWA. So I, on some level, you're always going to be a supporter. But how do we keep people engaged once they move from working at AT&T to working at Verizon where there's no union, right? Like, I think I think it starts with good representation. When you're an active employee, mm-hmm. if you see good representation, um, my humble opinion on what good representation is is a, a continuous presence, um, whether it's in person or on social media or some way in which you're always in front of the membership and that's both the members and the non-members, so really just the bargaining unit. You want to be in front of the whole bargaining unit, both members and non-members. The, me- the non-members should always have an opportunity to join at any point if they catch on and get it and whatever. And they should have equal opportunity to representation um, in the event that they have a dispute with their management, right? Um, good representation, if the non-member never signs up, and leaves the company and goes off to do whatever, can still have a pro-labor, pro-union outlook from their experience as a non-member in a, in, a, in a union environment. So having 
organized labor support versus organized labor membership after separating from a company. Mm-hmm. Membership would be great because it would provide additional resources if they're contributing dues as a member. Um, if they're contributing time and effort and helping at the local levels to um, administer and organize events and bring on new members themselves and and provide representation as a member of some kind for at-large membership ranks or something, you know, that'd be even better. But if we can just leave lasting impressions that are positive about organized labor, so I think it always starts with good representation, which in the CWA triangle, you got the foundation, the bottom line that goes left to right is representation. That's the foundation. Then coming down the left side is organizing, coming down the right side is uh, community building or cope or political action, movement building, that third side, right? So organizing is often the first side. It's where you generate members from who are the lifeblood of organized labor. Then there's representation is the foundation without it. That's your reason for being, the the raison d'etre. Yeah. and then the third side that closes the triangle off is the legislative piece through which the more we legislate, the less we negotiate. Well, so, so um, how do we, uh, how do we like, get people, though, that aren't like... I mean, you had a transformative experience as a member of CWA because you uh, got to do it full-time. You like, got really... Uh, you were able to like educate and empower other workers through it. Um, how do you just like keep somebody that was just a dues-paying supporter engaged when they leave their job and go work somewhere else that's non-union? Like, how do you keep them engaged in the labor movement? Um, eventually, there could be the, the cat is letting herself out. Yeah, yeah, Josie, get out of here. She can open the door. Yeah, she's a smart one. Yeah. So in our old house in the studio, um, we had like a round doorknob. Yeah. This one has those like uh, a longer thing so she can just bat it down with her paw to open the door. But anyway, with the old house with the round doorknobs, this cat is so freaking smart. Even though she doesn't have a posable thumb, she figured out how she figured out the like uh, you know the physics behind how the doorknob turns. And was attempting to use both her paws to turn the doorknob to get out of her room. That's how freaking smart she is. She wasn't successful lacking those opposable thumbs, but she knew exactly what she needed to do to try to open that door. Pretty crazy. Um, Anyway, but yeah, back to the question. I think that's one of the questions we want to attempt to solve through this podcast, right? Yeah. Um, This is potentially our um, offering as a way to try to reach out and engage people that aren't directly connected to the labor movement to like give them a channel to figure out a pathway um, into the movement um, and through whatever, pop culture, if you want to call this that, or activism radio. Well, that's, what, that's the answer to your question earlier about how do you keep former employees engaged, supportive, if not members, continuing. Right. Um, and if they go on to a non-union workplace with pro-union values, either they themselves can help organize their new workplace, or when a union organizer may come into that workplace in the future, there's a one who's waiting in the wings, someone who's assessed right. as a pro-union, pro-labor, 
because they came from a union environment previously. The experience was a positive one, whether they were a member or not. And they would allow, it with their vote, a union workplace to flourish again in the new workplace. So we're going to move on to the next segment. Yes, sir. Right? So we're, we want to get a sense of who is Ted, right? So how did you get to this point where you're, you know, organizing a podcast about pro-labor, pro-union? Where did that all start wow. at? Crazy, right? Uh, so, yeah, I mean, uh, I didn't grow up in, like, a union household. I mean, my mom and dad were educators. Dad was a college... Were they union educators? Well, was, yeah, my uh, dad was a college professor. Um, my mom was a, a teacher, so she was in the teacher's unions. Um, don't think she was ever active in them. Uh-huh. But and where was, was this? Uh, Texas, Georgetown, Texas, north of Austin. That's where I grew up. So, uh so, and like uh, we alluded to during your, uh, while you were telling your story, you, like, got to do a mock bargaining class in high school. Yeah. There was no labor education in Texas whatsoever. None. Zero. Zip. Uh-huh. So, like, everything I learned about the labor movement, I learned either in college or I learned, like, uh, in my early 20s, just doing my own reading on activism. Um, didn't learn anything about the labor movement in high school or grade school or junior high or whatever anything um so taking that in mind i was like uh went into college was super active politically uh throughout and uh one of the transformative experiences for my life was a 2000 election bush versus gore um it just like blew my mind that the Supreme Court could issue a decision that was basically completely partisan to appoint so many president yeah. and the people in the people weren't going to take to the streets and and you came from a left leaning yeah absolutely liberal in Georgetown Georgetown was liberal. Georgetown liberal left no Georgetown's in Williamson County which is actually. Uh, always at the highest ranking of most conservative counties in Texas, which is bizarre because Southwestern University, where uh, my dad taught at, was a very liberal university. But I guess, like, uh, the university community itself is completely outnumbered by the uh, traditional red Republican Texans that uh, make up Georgia. You're somewhat of an education specialist in labor and organizing right so well yeah i mean um can students even vote do they carry a vote in local elections college students because they're attending school there for most states there's been attempts as part of voter uh suppression at times for uh either local or state governments to try to make laws that say you can't vote as a student. But yeah. Generally speaking, those laws, uh, those laws have been overturned, and uh, generally speaking, um, yeah, you can vote wherever you go to school. So you're left-leaning um, by way of your parents who were left-leaning themselves, and dad taught at a, a very left-leaning liberal university. Yeah. But in a conservative area, did that give you like an understanding more, you think, of conservative values uh, by being surrounded by it? 
Honestly, no. I don't think so. I don't know. Like, uh, I got to college. I went to college at a liberal arts school in San Antonio, Texas, Trinity University. And, uh, you know, I read enough to just, like, I don't know. I mean, I'm very interested in understanding why people have conservative values. Um, Yeah. I have a very hard time understanding why they would vote against their own economic interests based on the science, based on the facts of, like, what your vote does when you vote conservative. We'll have to, we'll have to dive into that <laughs> yeah, as, yeah. like, a future right. topic. Right. We'll come back to this and we we'll go, yeah, we need to talk more about that next time. Um, so this is the point where your 2000 election... Oh, yeah, so that was transforming to me because I was just, like... Uh, I could not understand why people weren't taking to the streets in protest of this Supreme Court decision. And then, you know, 9-11 happens. Bam, we're in Iraq. That's where I became a, uh, radicalized, I think, if you want to call it that. I wouldn't uh, call it that. <laughs> like I wouldn't I was call it radicalized. Anti-war, <laughs> anti-Iraq war is not radicalized. Well, the, well some radicalized of the, what? Well, radicalized some of the, so, some of the, social democrat? No, no, no. So, radicalized hip-hop rapper railing against the administration. All right. <laughs> um, I would say more in those terms. I was very like heavily involved in Having it. said that, who were your main influencers at the time? Can, can I guess, like, Public Enemy would be, would that be one? Like, who were your... Who were you oh, listening I, to back then? Oh, I listened to uh, Tupac. Tupac, um, yep. Rage Against the Machine. Social Change. Yeah. Uh, Both of them. Yeah, who else? Yeah. Uh, Talib, Most Def, Roots. You're a musician, so you should probably have a lot of musical experience that you want to be able to uh, put out there. Right. Well, so anyway, but during the Iraq War, like 02, 03, 04, yeah. this period, we're like making like very, uh, uh, very like critical music at a time where the administration was not accepting criticism. Yeah. Don't you remember when. Uh, uh, there was a period of time where if you were against the war, you were, like, labeled as unpatriotic. Like, they talked about using the Patriot Act to round up, you know, subversives and yeah. people that were criticizing the administration. I mean, it never, ever amounted to any kind of serious, like, uh, um, to any serious, like, threats to the First Amendment. Um, there was definitely some issues with, like the way the Bush administration treated its critics. But it was a very scary time to be somebody that was, like, like daily and uh, regularly, like, speaking out through art against that administration. Um, so, yeah, so I, that's why I say radicalize, um, even though I just thought it was speaking truth to power. <laughs> you, you, you can say radicalize. You can't. Yeah. Uh, when they talk about radicalized in the media right now, yeah, it raises a different connotation. Image. Yeah, yeah, I got you. Conjures a different image because right. right now we're just audio, no video. So, um, <laughs> any rate, so uh, I spent a few years like you know doing uh, service industry, uh, low end publishing jobs after getting my bachelor's degree, while like you know concentrating on being a hip hop artist, and then. Uh, um, 2004, I decided that, like, 
you know, um, as much as I want to continue to be an artist, I need a career. So I got into political organizing um, because at that point I just could not, like, fathom working somewhere that I didn't feel like was where every day I got to at least make a difference in trying to make the world just a tiny bit better. Um, uh, so. Political organizing for the 2004 <laughs> campaign? That's Yeah, correct. So uh, I actually met my wife, Jen, um, in Chicago training to become a political organizer, and we both got assigned to Detroit, Michigan. So I worked the um, 04 campaign cycle in Detroit, Michigan. Worked for who? Um, so we were working uh, technically nonpartisan, get out the vote effort, but in uh, inner city Detroit. So it was a Democratic operative, obviously, get out the vote program to help uh, John Kerry win the election. Uh-huh. Um, so, uh, anyway, it was a great experience. We did our job, we won Michigan. So earlier in the night when they called Michigan, we were having a fantastic party on election night. Yeah. Later on in the night, hear the bad news that Bush won overall. Um, so anyway, uh, after that, I went home to Texas, and I was like, I love organizing. I had the bug, you know. Yeah. Like, that's what I want to do. Besides, so I want to be an organizer. organizing. Right. So I want to be an organizer, and I want to be an artist, and that's what I'm going to do with my time that my I, life <laughs> yeah uh so i get back to my texas life purpose my personal mission statement and uh going back to the beginning of the story you know i have no real connection to the labor movement it wasn't taught it in school um you know my parents taught me well enough to be pro-union but that's about as the extent of my labor education <laughs> i understood how unions like helped build a middle class and all the basics but uh Get back to Texas, and one of the only places that was hiring organizers was a CWA local called Texas State Employees Union. And uh, I think we can definitely spend a, uh, spend a few uh, uh, second podcasts talking about my experiences at TSEU, but um, I've been a CWA organizer ever since. So it was. Uh, How many years is that now? Twelve and a half. Twelve and a half years? Yeah. Are you so, staff? Staff. So are you staff CWA? Oh, yeah, yeah. You... So I'm a, a CWA organizer. That's a full-time job, so... Okay, so union CEO, non-member, pro-union supporter. Yeah. And current CWA, organized labor, staffer, you, you have a full-time occupation... Right. In organized labor as a organizer, right? No, um, yeah, absolutely right. So I'm a full-time paid organizer yeah. by CWA, um, and I'm very blessed that and privileged to have that. So did you get into what are you working on right now? Uh, no, nah, not really. Any campaigns or anything that you want to summarize? Uh, so I spent a lot of my time trying to uh, unionize T-Mobile. Mm-hmm. And the larger wireless industry. Um, Who's their CEO? John Ledger. Yeah. Not John Legend. So, John Ledger. John not Ledger. John Legend. And in case you're wondering, John Ledger is not Batman. I think that's a reference like to something he said about himself. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is that right? Correct. But John Ledger is the avatar of the union CEO Twitter handle, right? Correct. So, so the original uh, thought behind that, uh, sorry, uh, behind that uh, Twitter, the um, 
the parody account was I was like uh, hoping I could get John Ledger to get into a uh, Twitter a Twitter fight with a fictional version of himself and uh, thought there was a pretty high probability that I could accomplish that goal. Uh, the reason I didn't accomplish that goal is I guess somebody from corporate was giving him advice uh, about a week after I launched the account, and he immediately blocked it. T-Mobile blocked the account, and they've basically made the wise decision to not engage with me at all on Twitter because they understand that if they engage with Ted Jeezy, they get dealt with. <laughs> <laughs> But uh, being a union CEO, then, my hope would be to have CEO-level conversations with other CEOs, like John Ledger, and be able to reason that corporations can stand to benefit from an organized labor pool who has a singular contract. Well, so that was always part of, like, the hope with John Ledger is because, like, his whole identity and the company's identity and the marketing is all about being the uncarrier, uh-huh. not the traditional wireless carrier. We're the wireless carrier for millennials. Sure, so go against the grain and be a labor union company at a point in time right. when companies don't like labor. Guess what, John Ledger? If you're trying to appeal to millennials, there's a couple things you need to know about them. They're rattled with student debt. They're, like, uh, having a hard time, like, figuring out... Like, how to make this transition to be able to be homeowners or take a vacation or um, be able to, like, reasonably have enough money to raise a family. So if you want to zig when everybody else is zagging, how about you become the pro-union CEO? All right. Let's shift gears real quick. Rapid fire. Tupac or Biggie? Uh, Biggie. Lakers or Celtics? Knicks. Uh, popcorn or hot dogs? Uh, popcorn. Uh, beer or whiskey? Uh, whiskey. Country or hip-hop? Hip-hop. Um, West Coast or East Coast? East Coast. Uh, boat or plane? Uh, plane. Mars or Venus? Both, actually. Boat and plane. Uh, Venus. Uh, basketball or yoga? Basketball. Golf or breakfast brunches? Both. Golf is live. <laughs> no, no, pick one. <laughs> Golf or breakfast? Golf. Yeah. Oh, okay. Mexican or Italian food? Mexican. Mexican food or Chinese food? Mexican. Uh, no more food questions. <laughs> Favorite Mexican place? Uh, well, um, sponsored by Adelita's y Cochinas. Probably, I'd have to say um, my favorite Mexican place. There's a f- couple. They're all in the greater San Antonio area. Yeah. Um, ah, it's, it's a toss up. There's a place Chacho's, which is like the party spot. That's where you go get the giant margarita and get some like just like lower level. Uh, like amazing, like bar food type Mexican food. Uh huh. 
Then my other favorite though is papacitos. We're gonna get some shrimp. Uh, get some shrimp some fajitas. Shrimp. Some, sh- <laughs> some, some shrimp. shrimp. Some shrimp fajitas. Some, <laughs> some shrimp quesadillas. Get some baller margaritas. Oh man, papacitos. We actually have a papados here in Denver. If you're listening. Whoever runs the Papa's, Papados, Papacitos restaurant chain, bring Papacitos to Denver, Colorado. Beatles or Elvis? Beatles. Favorite Beatles song? Ah, favorite Beatles song. That's a good one. Um, I'd probably say either Hey Jude or Let It Be, and I know those are cliche answers. but Mine is Here Comes the Sun. That's a great one. That's because I substituted my... with Here Comes Jason. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's uh, definitely in my top five. Um, Harrison's guitar solo. Favorite book? Favorite book, On the Road by Jack Kerouac. Favorite bar in Denver? Favorite bar in Denver? Uh, my brother's bar? Yeah, why? <laughs> because it's a Jack Kerouac. It's actually in the book. Uh, no. <laughs> No, actually, my local spot is Adelita's here in the neighborhood. If you want to sponsor Adelita's, please feel free. Favorite 80s TV sitcom? Oh, dude, uh, Family Ties. You know what's funny about my childhood? Lifelong, we talked about I was raised a liberal, uh, liberal parents. Um, so I was also a contrarian as a child. Like, if my family was one thing, I wanted to be something else. Uh, so my family liked the Dallas Cowboys, so I was a Houston Oilers fan. Pretty simple one, right? Yeah. My fam. So I went through a phase where my family is Democrats. I'm going to be a Republican, and I was largely inspired by Michael Keaton on uh, <laughs> on Family Ties and his uh his love of Reagan. So it's quite actually true. When I was six years old in 1984, I was a Reagan supporter in that yeah. 1984 campaign against Mondale. Reagan was the great charmer. <laughs> he think, won more crossover votes, I think probably. Was, I, would, I would say it was more Michael, uh, uh, Michael J. Fox's charm than Ronald Reagan's. <laughs> yeah. Sold me, but... So this has been the inaugural episode of solidarity radio hope you've enjoyed it we've really enjoyed bringing it to you um hopefully like for now it's gonna be a monthly pod uh we hope to bring you some exciting guests starting in denver colorado and broadening out from there so um stay with us we're gonna um make it worth your while and uh thanks for your time jay dow no i i have nothing you're, you're done. He's the audience, done. if there is one in the future, knows already by now <laughs> that you're signed that up. I don't do podcasts. Yeah. I'm not a podcast. Dude, you got to do your air horn though. I, I said that bit while you were gone. Oh, you did. All yeah. Right. So right. I already I did my part All in right. the middle. Yeah. All right. Keep it one hundred. Yeah. Keep it a hundred. <laughs> Peace. Time for the underground to rise. If y'all are feeling me, throw your fist up. Let me hear you say what. Come on.
of the transition from pen to pad and paper Now listen, it's a dangerous one launching up on the solo mission With the M7 boys backing up every word I'm spitting You like the earth minus the ozone and my flow is blistering My tongue's blazing with lasers and tasers and phasers Reload my chambers with rounds laced with traces No way to escape us Best bet is to hate us and hope we keep safe your acres But I poison likes like the names where I'm at day is fucking haters I'm a menace to common knowledge Honing my skills in college Mix it with ballers, with prophets and scholars with donors Transform my physical form to a rock while I eat up these prima donnas and flip them like Bart Connor. Now the underground's back in the saddle. Watch the cages rattle, but what does it matter? Cause we ready for battle. Are you ready for war? I wanna hear you screaming. So when you say what, motherfuckers make me believe it. Revolutionaries talk as the underground sparks When them sevens on the block, we instigate the movement Let me hear you say what the real soldiers Load them up and knuckle up, let's make this motherfucking crowd just lose it The presence of empty minds, you know, is the shit we after Pierce through the ears, straight to the brain, just like a Stratocaster Now I'm back to attack the crap, disguises thinking matter Inject all thoughts at all costs, bitch, your mind is captured We revolutionary, ain't it scary how I can marry Common theories with their flawless delivery So when you hearing me, I appear to be preaching the words of a seminary Without the fear of reading the lines of my own obituary Fuck causes of death, I'm under constant duress By a general public Whose constant thoughtlessness has caused the restlessness and selfishness Of its government to engage its obsessiveness in other things Not as people listen to the words that I speak you Feel the beat when the record meets the needle Hope these rhymes will reach you in time to unlock your mind Because it's by design that I realign humankind And leave these bitches petrified Restore as the underground sparks When M7's on the block, we instigate the movement Let me hear you say what the real soldiers Load them up and knuckle up, let's make this motherfucking crowd just lose it Revolutionaries talk as the underground sparks When M7's on the block, we instigate the movement Let me hear you say what the real soldiers Load them up and knuckle up, let's make this motherfucking crowd just lose it Talk as the underground sparks When M7's on the block, we instigate the movement Let me hear you say what the real soldiers Load them up and knuckle up Let's make this motherfucking crowd just lose it Revolutionaries talk as the underground sparks When M7's on the block, we instigate the movement Let me hear you say what the real soldiers Load them up and knuckle up Let's make this motherfucking crowd just lose it Here's a good one. Um, Bernie Sanders, President 2020, or J. Dow, City Council Member 2018. Oh, yeah. I have to pick one or the other? <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd, I'd pick Bernie. <laughs>